This is SciBite, episode 84, for March 5th, 2013. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science news and information podcast. Fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com and live Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey Heather, happy science to you. Happy science. All right, what are we talking about today? All right, we're going to take a look at an HIV infected infant that is functionally cured, a really old star. A big Atlantic meteorite, renaming a NASA center, updates on the private Mars mission and the Dragon spacecraft supply Ooh. mission, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. It was, you know, it was a science action-packed news uh, yes. week. I mean, just headline after headline this week. I was like, I can't wait for SciBite. So let's jump into our first story with the news. Okie What are we going to talk about first, Heather? All right. A team of researchers from John Hopkins Children's Center have described what they call as the first case of a so-called hands-in-air, quotation mark, functional cure a in an HIV-infected infant. Okay. That sounds like a functional cure is a, a pretty important distinction from a traditional cure. Yeah. A functional cure is something when a patient achieves and maintains long-term viral remission, so you don't have to have lifelong treatment. Uh, clinical tests don't detect it, but when you go in and you have um, really ultra-sensitive methods, you can go in there and you can see bits and pieces of the uh, virus still. Like the DNA? Yes. Now, this specific case, uh, the infant reportedly went into remission af- because, um, after receiving heavy duty treatments within 30 hours of birth. Most of the time, they put in a high-risk infant. They put them in sort of a a low um, a low dose regimen until they get a you know a blood sample back, and then they kick it up a notch. One of the things I had heard, I don't know if you, I don't, I but I'd only read this in one spot. I don't know if you mm-hmm. picked this up anywhere, but uh, some people are saying that they believe they might have administered the super strong dosage before they'd actually even confirmed that that the baby had had HIV yet. Like the test hadn't come back yet. But they knew the mother yes. had it, and so like they just wanted to go for it. Yeah, I've kind of, I was thinking that, and I read one other place where supposedly they got some sort of a fast response, saying chances were very high or chances were likely. But for a little while, I was thinking that too. It's where doctor just made a call. It's like the one hospital that the baby was born in, um, they didn't have the type of medication that they could give an infant, so they had to ship it to a different hospital with the baby to a different hospital. And then there, a doctor, for whether he had a confirmation test or not, whatever you say, it's he decided to do, and it was the three-drug regimen. So it was three different fairly powerful drugs, all within 30 hours of birth. And this seems like one of those things where, okay, maybe like he just shocked it out of the system, right? But it sounds yeah. really dangerous to give that level of dosage to a brand new baby, you know, that's, that's gotta be risky. So a hard thing to test further, right? 
Like you don't want to yeah. do this to more babies necessarily because. Yeah, you... it's they're trying to look forward and see, well, what does this mean? Um, can we use it again or is it just in this specific instance? And in some cases, the, you know, it's a risk, uh, risk weighing measures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so what would the long term, what would the long term effects be? Of these drugs versus what the long term effects be being HIV any. positive, yeah, being HIV positive. <laughs> That's very true. It's you know in a very mm. off, not at least not at all a one to one comparison. But chemo is bad for you. It makes your body unhappy. Oh yeah, better than the alternative. So it's it's a very give and take here. There are actually people who are sort of uh, naturally sort of viral suppression. So that's really, really rare, rare. Less than half a percent of HIV-infected adults actually are able to sort of have this elite controller status where their immune system is able to sort of rein it in and keep it to sort of clinically undetectable levels. So they have it, but it's sort of reined in at a low noise level. And then, you, you know, you have this infant that's functionally cured. You have one, this is the only case of this functionally cured, where they can see little bits of the virus. Now, it was a very tiny piece, and it wasn't even able to be, it couldn't reproduce. Hmm. So, so it's, it's just, kind of you know, just been, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, it's still in the system, but it can't do anything of harm that they can tell. Yeah. Okay. It's little, little tiny corpses that can't zombie <laughs> okay. back to life. Okay. <laughs> they can't zombie back. Little HIV zombies, huh? Well, they're not zombies. Right. Oh, right. They can't right, zombie. Right. They can't zombie. Okay, gotcha. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's one case of a complete sterilizing cure where there is absolutely no case, no, you know, can't read it at all in the body. But that was a really strange rare case where a man was able to get treated with a bone marrow transplant because he had leukemia. So he had to take out his whole immune system, get a blood uh bone marrow transplant was able to get one from somebody who was one of those um, highly resistant people. And through that whole complicated matter, somehow he ended up being completely cured. Hmm. But in this, in this case, um, it was, like you said, an HIV infected mother had these combination of really strong antiretrovirals. Right. Um, and they actually was able to show as the days went on in the first month of you know, life that it was progressively diminishing and they were actually unable to detect it at one month old. Now they were able to maintain the antivirals up until 18 months of age. And then from what the hospital says is the mother had some sort of life issue, something along that line, and they completely lost track of it, of the kid. Yeah, yeah. She, the kid just kind of fell out of the system. Yeah, and then finally the state was able to track it down. And I guess during this time, later. the mother wasn't even administering medication. No, there was absolutely no medication administered for ten months. Yeah, and so then they went back and they're like, "Okay, where do we where do we stand?" And that's where they said, "Wow, we don't detect anything with any of these antibodies." The sta- all the standard clinical trials were. So how do negative. we know? How do we know we can? T- Totally trust this. If they didn't have a solid confirmation, did they ever get confirmation from right after birth? I mean, they went. I just yeah. I mean, 
Did they? Do you? They, I, I've never heard. Like, did they eventually get reports back and say, "Oh yeah, that yeah, baby was HIV positive"? Yes, there was. It was HIV positive. Okay. Uh, the question is whether or not I've seen some question marks as to whether or not the doctor started before the results came in, or was it somebody said, "Yeah, I think so," as the quick response, and then the official, you know, report was going to come back later. Right. You know, the the thing that strikes me about the, I mean, obviously this has, you know, if they can reproduce this, this has ramifications around the world, but, uh, you know, there are some areas of the world where there's a very high birth rate of uh, HIV uh, positive babies where they come out and they they get it because the mother's got it. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you could, if if you could treat, if you could treat them down there, you would eventually have massive reductions in the spread, I would think. Yes. Now, if you can have the right prenatal care, they're actually up to uh, 98% of newborns that are born to an HIV-positive mother with the right treatments don't have it. They can reduce it down to only 2% of infants born if they have the right prenatal care. Wow. But in these cases where there is no prenatal care, which is a lot of places in third world countries, so... Can you do that? Will it work? Is it in this specific case only because it was right at birth? No, you hit it with all these powerful drugs. One of the problems with treating it is you treat it, it's kind of cleared out, but somewhere in your system there's a little closet, a very tiny closet where it's hiding and it's got the door shut and it's hiding behind some, you know, coats or something. And then once everyone's cleared out and it says, okay, you're free, that pops out of the closet and it continues to, you know, reinfect. So it's that case where were they able to hit it hard enough and early enough before the immune system was, you know, while it was still settling in, is that, you know, was this, um, in addition, able to completely knock it out before anything had the chance to go and hide in some closet or nook or cranny somewhere? It's kind of a it's kind of this interesting mix of, of situations too where there was this early dosage and for better or for worse the mom falls out of the system so she wasn't medicating the kid and so but what that also tells us is that it wasn't a prolonged regimen that 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 cured it that it was an initial dosage and that, that is such yeah, a, a critical piece of information. Dosage. Yeah, high initial dosage and then it, yeah. I mean they did dose until 18 months old. Okay, but, but still but 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 at that point if, there was if, but you, well, I guess what my point is, if she had continued dosing, just like part yeah. of the system kept coming in for checkups and all that stuff, they might have attributed the clearing up to that, to that yes, following the regimen. Maintaining the re- regimen, yes. yeah. yeah. And is it the fact that, you're totally correct, the fact that it's totally knocked out of the, you know, out of the radar and then they come back and like, okay, where do we stand? Oh, wait, we stand kind of in the clear. Yeah, they're probably what, like, well, what's we better, going on I mean, here? Could you imagine they brought her in it after after ten months and they said, "Oh, we got to get her tested. We got to run the blood. We got to see what's in there because she's yeah. you know, she hasn't been taking this medication, so we're really concerned about her." I, that was probably yeah. the conversation. Oh yeah, I mean they had, you know, uh, state uh, maybe child welfare or something going out and trying to specifically look for, you know, this person. There was, you know, just they're out there like on the radar saying, "Hey." If anybody sees this person, we're really looking for them. You know, there's a sick kid without medication now. So, but in the end, they really don't know. Obviously, there's not enough data for a one person does not equal complete answer. 
But this does enter the case of, okay, this actually occurred. Can it occur again? And isn't, oh man, I'm, I'm, I am just so sketchy on the details on the story, but I, I thought I heard too that there was another kind of case alike, or there's been some other cases kind of like this around the world that are that they're going to look at now and say, well, mm-hmm. that kind of sounds like what happened here. Let's go take a look at your scenario and see if it kind of is the same thing and see what your results are. So they're starting that process too. Yeah, and I I remember reading some, how's it, I don't recall now, some article that was indicating that um, the breastfeeding was not actually passing it on, that there was some thing that the body was secreting in the milk to say, to kind of fight against oh, it. Oh, wow. So it was sort of a natural, you know, saying, you know, with the right things going on is that that was not actually passing it on. So there's a lot of different directions yeah. To go from here. Yeah. But, you know, if we can start knocking it out. Yeah. At. Making you know, it, at, slowing it down at least. Yeah, slowing it down there, then that's going to take a mighty step forward. Mm-hmm. This got quite a bit of attention. You know, I saw this in the headlines. Uh, oh, um, yeah. Um, all, you know, all, all Monday was it? Because I think it did a break over the weekend. I can't remember what day it was, but just lots yeah, and I lots of so, coverage. Yeah, yeah, because I had some stuff and it was kind of the show notes were kind of settled out. And then I saw that. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, who's on the cho- chopping block? You, story. Yoink. Uh, I know. Threw it, off the, threw it off the radar, went through an article or two, highlighted it up. Like, okay. All right. You get the upgrade. This isn't important enough. You get the upgrade. Well, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, uh, you know, just um, the the philosophical side of me is is really scared the hell out of HIV and, and AIDS and uh, uh, just uh, anything we can do that kind of gets some control under that. And I, you know, and yeah. even if things are not as bad as they used to be, I still, in some parts of the world, they're still just awful. Oh, so this is incredibly awesome. bad. Yeah. It's, this so, is just 100% good news for the family and that kid. And then possibly oh, yeah. could be great news for science and humanity. So this is just like a great news all around. Oh yeah. I mean, even if it only works in a percentage you know, does it work in 10% of cases, uh, yeah, right, quarter percent right. of the cases, then still <clears throat> yeah, that is yeah. another percentage of cases that you're being able to slow things down and treat. Yeah. Now, hopefully this guy's not, this kid wasn't just a one-off. Yeah. Like a, like that's, a special, that's a a special like little mix of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff, Heather. Fascinating stuff. And of course, lots of links in the show notes and uh, more information. Uh, but any other thoughts on that one? No, just kind of waiting to see what goes on here. Where it goes next. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a quick pause and we have a special pick. Now, these picks are ones that uh, we throw a link to these at the top of our show notes. So you just go find episode 84 and you'll find a link. And uh, when you buy from that link, it'll support the show and the network. And we use that to pay for the bandwidth and all that kind of stuff that thankfully like goes up. I mean, that, you know, always costs us more all the time, but we're also always growing more. So the more of you who continue to come on and use our affiliates, it actually kind of is a beautiful little uh, symbiosis there. And this week, Heather's uh, new favorite game <laughs> yes. is our pick, Sim, the new SimCity. Yes, I may have stayed up a hair late last night. Not really all that late. I was able to sleep and not fall asleep at work. Um, but <laughs> it's definitely looking at it, getting it downloaded, and then pick up some food on the way home, check it out. I was like, oh, wait, I need to go set up SciBite. So I went out here and set up and then it was my goal to get myself a fire department and a police station set up in my little town. Yeah, that, that is That was cool. my goal before I actually came out here. And you did it? 
I did. Good job. Well, you know, I'm looking at this, and I, you know, I, I used to play the old SimCity, and this is, they have really fancied this thing up. I mean, you can get down in there, and there's yeah. some real detail here. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is, there is significant changes from old SimCities, which I hadn't played, um, but from what I can tell, the, you know, all the utilities are just sort of automatically rooted along roads, but. So it's like your power and your oil, or gas, or whatever it might be. Yeah, power, okay. water, electric, yeah. you know, all that kind of things are through the roads but you know it's i think it's interesting there's like heat maps essentially saying hey here's your pollution here's your water hey coal is over here and you know if it's in the middle of where you plan to do downtown then you're like hmm do i want to mine coal (laughs) maybe i better move downtown i i i'm wondering i i think you know one of the things i do like about this amazon purchase and but i'm still kind of curious what what if i get this what way am i go but they've got the box version you can still mm-hmm. get it in the box, and then you don't have to worry about digital download. But then Amazon also has a digital download service separate from Origin that you can buy from and yes. download it from Amazon. But yes. you you did point out that you still need an Origin account to play the game. Yeah, you have to log on to Origin. And some of the – they've said some of the simulation calculations are on their server side. Wow. Now, it is online as well. You can play with other people, oh. or you can make a sort of your own personal – server That's game cool. which i did with the hubby so he'd been able to play a little bit earlier so you guys than i have had a persistent world between each other yes oh. he set up his town a little bit for me so he had his fire department and his police station and then i started when i got home and he's like here let me help you out so he assigned like a police car and he an ambulance guys from over his to town my, to <gasps> no. he was able to assign them over to my town so no i i had a one of his cops come and uh, arrest a robber and I had them come oh. over, and they ended up putting out a fire. One of my houses started going burning oh, down. Oh my god! That so, is so he was cool. to the rescue, Heather. And you can like sell power it. to other like be like, here, I have oil. Let me sell it to you. Uh, I did not know that. And now, see, see now, Sakurumi in the chat says I should have known that, but I didn't know that. That is so cool. So I think I'm gonna go download from Amazon. Then I can keep mm-hmm. my never downloading games from Origin Streak, and then except for like one. Uh, but then I have an yeah. Origin account, so I think that's the route I'll go. Wow, that is so cool. I mean, see, Angie's on a Mac, so. But what mm-hmm. I was thinking is that it is kind of a great spouse setup there because she could have a version and I could have a version, and we could help each other out, and we don't have to be in competition at all, right? We could all be cooperative. Yeah. Ah, see, that's yes. fun. That's fun. All right, well, there you go, folks. <laughs> if you want to grab that and have some fun, uh, just uh, grab the uh, link in our show notes and uh, support the show when you do so. All right, Heather. Well, then uh, let's move right along now that I'm uh, just uh, purchasing SimCities real quick and uh, <laughs> get into the news bite. I love that Amazon uh, one-click purchase. All right, Heather, what is our news bite topic? All right. A star that is almost as old as the universe. That's old. Yes, that's very old. So... We're able to tell somewhat the age of stars that they're really ancient because they're metal poor. So they don't this, have a lot of metals in them. So is this like, I'm probably jumping ahead. You're probably going to tell uh, me why. I won't jump ahead. Never mind. Go ahead. Continue. Okay. So heavier metals are sort of created from, the only way you can get them is supernovas. So if you have something that doesn't have a lot of metal in it, a star that, or a system that hardly has any, then that means that it's probably very old. It's from when there wasn't a lot of it, so there hadn't been a lot of supernovas, so there hadn't been a lot of stars, and it kind of rolls forward or back as the case may be. 
and it's only 190 light years away. Now, far, not far, but sort of near us in the fact that with a star this old. So they can be used to sort, these old stars can be used to sort of constrain the age of the universe. So we're able to tell, all right, we're fairly certain that this star, if we can get its exact age, then we can kind of range off that the age of the universe. So, you know, there hasn't been a lot of supernova. They're not, you know, it's not enriched with metals. So we can get a better idea of what's going on. Now, in fact, this specific star only has 1% of the iron content as the sun. And, you know, from there, able to see from uh, Kepler's able, I mean, the, the Hubble Space Telescope is able to look at the Hubble constant. So the speed at which things are accelerating away from each other. So you can use that to say, all right, if it's going at this speed and it has this little iron or this little metals, then you can kind of start calculating from different directions to try to figure out, get a better idea of the age. And in fact, what they're able to do in this case was look at the parallax, which is, um, you know, the star movement. Say, you know, put your finger out, you know, a foot in front of your face. Look through your left eye, then your right eye. See, there's a, it sort of moves. Now, your finger is not actually moving. It's just that your point of, uh, observation is moving so if we're able to observe a star when we're on one side of the sun say you know january 1st and then six months later you know we're on the other side of the sun we observe it again and was there a little bit of movement in the star Mm -hmm. and from that we can calculate exact distance of where that star is so we can say okay it's located right here with, it seems to be going this fast. It has this little iron. So calculating from a lot of different directions, we'll be able to say that, yes, it's not conflicting that the age of the universe is 13.7 billion years old. See, I, I was going to ask you a really stupid question, so I'm glad I didn't ask it. But I'll just, in full disclosure, what I was going to ask is, how can it be as old as the universe unless it was like closer to the source of the Big Bang, and so maybe it was one of the first things that formed, but it's not that at all. It's, it could be anywhere in the universe, but it just happens to be one of the first things that formed. Yes. Now, it's kind of one of those weird things where it's hard to wrap your brain around, and my brain even, it kind of looks at the Big Bang origin stretching, universe stretching out. I mean, obviously one tiny little spot, and it accelerates really fast. Right. And it's, this, you know, the speeds of the of the expansion and the shape of the universe and then you know there's a whole bunch of just blobby gas or gas then it starts blobbing together then it starts gravitationally sort of mushing into circular objects and then you're able to make a star so see so these first stars and these first sort of when the stars gather together and make these sort of galaxies so it's all these different things and you're just looking at what, you know, what and where those old stars look like, and you're able to tell if they're sold because they have such little metals. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's kind of giving us a better idea of what stars looked at, um, you know, how they were forming and how the universe looked early on in the, you know, dawn of time, as you should say, mm-hmm. and kind of getting a better idea of 
where that where the time clock started. So it's so cool we can see from our our little corner of the of the <clears throat> galaxy. Yes, and see what's out there. Mm-hmm, Let's mm-hmm. find out. Let's take a look. All right, Heather. Well, uh, should we move on to the uh, two bite news? Let's go. Yeah, the band decided to come back. Even though I fired them, they did that uh, little performance for us pro bono. They they keep coming back. We can't we can't send them away. <laughs> it's actually kind of a big problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, before I have to uh, file for that restraining order, let's uh, let's talk about meteorites. Yes, in Antarctica, you can go and search for meteorites. There's um, there's certain areas in the Antarctic that sort of conglomerate them together. There's a couple of uh, videos in the show notes kind of helping visualize this. Okay. Where the ice sheets actually sort of rotate. Like, um, mm. the, uh, gravi- like uh, pl- tectonic plates. You know, okay. they, they sort of dive down and come up. Now, these specific plates go up to a set of mountain sheets, and they all kind of come together in a certain area. And then the wind is really hard and fast. So it's sweeping sweeping away the ice on the top. And the way it's coming together, you get these fields where all the asteroids that have landed in this whole giant area all sort of get dumped in this one specific area. It, it so like, you can it just like sort of, shifts them down in like like down into that area. It like yes. it sifts them down into there. <laughs> yes, it's you know, they get buried in snow into the ice and then they sort of take the conveyor belt all the way over to near the mountains. So then you have Antarctic expeditions where you go out and you, you know, pitch your little tents and are frozen ice solid. And then they get on snowmobiles and little cross-country vehicles and you drive around and you look for rocks. Now, it's not like there's a rock that has to be a meteorite. There are actually little rocky exposures. But for the most part, you can look out and you're like, hey, Let's go over there and look at this. Now, in this specific instant, they, well, should I say, they've been locating them through this sort of fashion since 1912. So, but this specific recent expedition uh, was from a Belgian and Japanese expedition. They found 425 meteorites in about 40 days. Now, what makes this interesting is that they found a 40-pound or 18 kilogram meteorite. Now, this is the largest found in East Antarctica for the last 25 years. It's the fifth largest meteorite ever found in East Antarctica. Oh. It's, let's see, um, 0.08% of all meteorites found in that area have been bigger. Only 0.08%. Huh. So, they've made, you know, some initial tests that say it's sort of a ordinary... Uh, chondrite, sort of a run-of-the-mill meteorite. The um, sort of like very similar to the one that burst into fragments over Russia a few weeks back. But they don't know if this is new? Oh, it's ancient. Okay, so it's been here for a while. Yeah, these things have been here for a while. They land all across the sheets. And then, yeah, the shifting process. They get buried in snow, then they kind of travel down underneath... when you said the Russian meteorite, I started thinking maybe it came with all of that and it landed up there, oh. but no. 
No, it's just the same type. Yeah. It, it's a duck. It, it doesn't mean that it came from the same place or it's yeah. a new duck. Yeah. <laughs> it's from way over there. It's just It's got to get duck. sifted. It takes time to get sifted. Yeah. It, <laughs> exactly. So I was just saying it's a similar type, but the fact that this is, they do these expeditions every, um, you know, every year whenever they, the weather permits that they actually can. You have to wait for the warm months, quote unquote warm months. Um, wait for the top two layers to, to defrost at least. Yeah. So you don't freeze solid. You're only frozen sort of solid. <laughs> so, you know, they go out and they take uh, pictures and they're really careful about gathering these things up. Mm. You know, they use gloves and try to keep it as clean as possible because, mm. because it's so cold and because of the environment, it's very pristine. So you're not, it's not really contaminated by anything. So, you can go in and you can look at them and, you know, they'll oftentimes, you know, show a picture of something else near it. So you can be like, here's a pen. So you can kind of give the initial picture of this rock we found right here, a GPS location facing this way, this side up. It's about this big. I've actually seen, um, you know, there are some teams that go out and they have a little uh, square cube, you know, that has north, south, east, west you know, written on it, you know, and top, bottom. So you can say, all right, this is a one-inch square, a one-inch cube, and put it down and say, Oop, put the north facing north, and that's how it is. That's how it was oriented at this specific location. So you can get a lot of details out of where they were found, what they are. But this specific one was just sort of eye-popping to me because it was so large. Mm. Yeah. It sounds, I mean... Like a lot of work and very cold and very uncomfortable, but uh, yes. like kind of adventurous too. <laughs> yes. So somebody will, you know, you're out riding and you see a rock. So you stop your snowmobile, you get off and you go over and look. And if it looks promising, you stand up and you like wave your little arms, your very covered little arms of full of stuffing. And then everyone comes over and then like, it's funny, I've seen pictures like, like four people all gathered around on hands and knees looking at this one tiny little rock. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Is it a meteor right or a meteor wrong? Yes. They had a little. That wasn't. That was their joke. I took it from their video. Yeah, it's okay. I was gonna. I was gonna pretend for you. Thanks. That was nice of you. I should have just rolled with it then. Maybe (laughs) silly audience never would have caught on. I could have gotten away with it. (sighs) I deserve it. That's for me. All right. Well, very interesting. And uh, um. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, no. Just very hard to get there, very hard to be there, but sometimes it's you get really cool results like this. So when I think of Neil Armstrong, I think that Armstrong, that's a great name. That's strong. Yep. I like yes. that. Very iconic. Yeah. Turns out a few other people might like it too, huh? Yes, indeed. The House of Representatives, uh, U.S. House of Representatives, should I say, has voted to rename <laughs> NASA's... Uh, Dryden Flight Center in Southern California to the Neil A. Armstrong Flight Research Center. And then they there's a whole testing area that they would sort of keep Dryden's name. So they'd be like, you get, you know, Dryden Testing Range. Oh, cool. Okay. But they actually sort of worked together back in the day. Um, Dryden was the visionary behind some of the rocket planes in the Apollo program that Neil Armstrong actually flew. 
So he was sort of envisioning and Dryden was designing these sort of test test planes and um, Armstrong was actually able to fly some of them. And actually uh, Dryden, who this uh, was named after and they're hoping to sort of pass the torch on, he's the one that actually recommended to Kennedy to say, hey, you should say we should uh, put a man on the moon in 10 years. I no think it's way. achievable. You know, I, it's something that we could do. It's something people could rally behind. No, unfortunately, oh, yeah. he was never able to see that happen. Yeah, but. yeah. Huh. Well, very cool. So, so his name wouldn't, and I like that his name wouldn't be gone. You know, a little, no, they're not going to remove. That's his nice. Name. That's that's a nice touch. It's classy. Yeah, it's going to be you know just the surrounding test range would be him. And this is done. They've already approved it. Now, the House of Representatives has okay has passed it. Now, this they have tried to pass this two, maybe up to three times before. And it just doesn't go through all the various processes. Now, this is the first time since Neil Armstrong has been, you know, has has t- passed away. So you're thinking there might have be a better chance this time so yeah, that it could yeah. be named after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. Yes, all right, indeed. then uh, strap on your spacesuit because we've got a spacecraft update. We do indeed. Last week, may have mentioned that the Dragon Space supply mission to the space station was scheduled to go and it was sort of a awesome here's number two it'll be cool yeah and there was a problem right after launch it's not blown up it is actually attached to the space station now okay but there was a glitch right after launch that um now we had that glitch months ago in launch where you know the other spacecraft that was hitching a ride couldn't get up to the proper altitude. Now the so the launch vehicle actually worked without a hitch. Now what happened is it got into orbit and three of the four sets of thrusters didn't immediately kick in. So you have these four sets of thrusters that are able to help it maneuver in orbit. Now three of those four didn't actually kick on. Okay. So they're thinking, oh, maybe it was a stuck valve, maybe it was a line blockage. Mm-hmm. But either way, the solar panels swung out about two hours later than planned. Now, about an hour later, they were actually able to raise it into a safe altitude. But there was a point where there was a little bit of nerve nerve wracking going on because if they didn't get something back on track soon enough, then its orbit would start decaying and it would become in a dangerous, you know, place where they might not be able to sort of come back. Okay. But they were able to come back, and then SpaceX and NASA were sort of watching it very carefully, making sure that. Yes, it is in a safe orbit. Yes, it's actually working. No, it's not going to be doing anything funny. Hmm. Now, SpaceX said, you know, we're on hold now. Technically, we could, it could sit there in orbit and be on hold for a while, maybe up to a month or so. If, you know, NASA needs that long to decide that it's okay. But they were, did able to say, you know, it was okay. By late, sa- it launched Friday morning. By late Saturday afternoon, you know, they'd had enough recovery work. NASA said, okay, you can go ahead and start start bringing it in and we'll uh, rendezvous with the space station early Sunday morning. So they were able to capture it very early Sunday morning, had more than a ton of supplies. They actually had some needed equipment, like air mm. purifiers and mm. things. Good. So I'm glad they so, let it go then. Yeah. The only downside was because this is such a quick turnaround, uh, oftentimes the, spa- the SpaceX people put in some fresh food 
in the last mission and they had some fruit in this one. Oh. So fruit probably didn't make it so much. Oh. But it's okay. So this is the first time there's been trouble in orbit. None of the other missions that they've had, you know, had yeah. thruster issues. And this, this is, is the first time. this is two of eleven, right? Of yes. in the contract. Do I you, believe so. I mean, do you think you know by number five and uh, and, uh, and upwards until probably number eleven? Do you think at that point the pretzels just completely stop caring? Probably. Look just at become these, routine. Yeah. Look at the space shuttles. I mean, you had a whole bunch of press coverage, and then it starts diminishing, diminishing, diminishing until something happens, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or you know, some sort of big event. And so then, then suddenly, everybody's watching it again, you know, and it's diminishing returns of viewers. Yeah, everyone has their fifteen minutes of fame, including science stories. I, I bet it was a banana. I bet they were bananas because you think about it. Oh. That's probably the safest thing to eat in zero G, right? Because you can't apple. do strawberries. Apples are not bad, but there's still a lot of, you know, if you get a nice juicy apple, there can be some, uh, some you know, drippage. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'd bet yeah. I'd bet banana because even then the peel, you know, not ideal, but manageable. Yeah. But manageable in zero G. Hmm. True. If you find out, will you let us know? Yeah. Speaking of story updates, I think we have a few story updates, don't we? We do. All right, then Then that would be, let's uh, go with, uh, and a little bit of updates. There we go. All right, Heather, what All is right. Oh, excellent. Yes, we mentioned the Russian meteorite just briefly earlier. There are more than 100 fragments that have been found from this now. They've been found along this 50-kilometer, 30-mile uh, trail along this path. Now, we found a lot of small meteorites. Now, they've actually been able to find in a, you know, a wide crater near, near uh, a lake, but now they've discovered the biggest chunk so far, actually weighing more than a kilogram, uh, mm. 2.2 pounds. So they believe there are probably more to be found, uh, possibly a chunk along this size, maybe even bigger. Uh, they're thinking that there might be something along the bottom of uh, this lake, some people may have seen the picture of the, you know this ice covered lake mm-hmm. and a big circle circular hole popped out of it. Mm-hmm. And we- so they don't know for sure whether that was part of the meteorite or whether it had been there before. But so they've had a couple of you know investigations trying to search into the lake, trying to find if they can see you know a a piece of this rock, a meteorite fragment. So they're continuing looking there. They know about the size that it should be, but they're still looking for. All these type of things, most of them very tiny pebble sized, mm. but the mission continues. Mm. Now, a lot of these little tiny ones are easy to find because it's there's snow there. So you just kind of stomp around and you're like, hey, there's a hole in the snow. Dig down. Hey, here's a rock in the snow. He's gotta go it your, looks kind of melted. It's got to make sure uh, you go out and look for your rocks before it snows again. Yes. I, so. That might be fun too. And it's a little easier than going all the way to the Antarctic. Yes. <laughs> Uh, all right, now we have some more updates, don't we? Yes, we do. Last week, we talked about Dennis Tito, the uh, space tourist. He was sending this mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. And it was right before they made the press announcement. And, you know, I was reading between the lines, and I kind of foo-fooed it. And then they made the press announcement, and I facepalmed. Oh, really? Because they are actually aiming to launch two people. They're not going to land, but they're going to orbit Mars. It'll be a 501-day mission. Now, they actually want a male and a female, so they actually are thinking about a husband and wife team. Hmm. 
So it's looking, you know, to test out all the technologies. Heather, 500 days is a long time. No video games that entire time. Yes. Think of it as a really long road trip where you're in a little, that you know. That is the worst road trip ever. I mean, yeah, cool. 501 days. You're not able to get out and stretch your legs. No, it is just you and the other person and not a lot else. I mean, it would be it would be basically 400 and probably 98 days of just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess once you orbit Mars, at least you get a good view for a while. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's something. Yeah, if they have a little uh, viewport. Yeah. Essentially, it's a tiny little, you know, launch vehicle. And then the thought is they'll probably have an expandable, inflatable something to give a little bit more room. But you carry all the supplies you need and just. They don't even have it. a ship. So this is not happening. Well, no. I it's mean, not, how can you even yet. do something like this until you even have the fundamental technology to pull it off? Yeah, there's the technology now. He is planning January 2018. So the plan is a lot more complicated than I thought. Okay. Because they are actually sending two people and they're actually doing... So what was the thing that made you facepalm? Just because I automatically assumed they were just firing off a cannon of uh, space. You know, here, oh, oh, here's our oh, thing. Oh, okay. Fly by Mars, go out forever, we don't care. Yeah. Now, the plan that they are actually planning to put two people in it loop around Mars and come back. So that's why interesting the two now. people? What's the point of that? Just to have it be a manned mission? Just um, I mean yeah, why not have the first mission, why test not? out all the t- test out all the tech to actually get to Mars. We haven't really had anybody go past the moon. I know, but why not oh. have the first time a private spacecraft goes to Mars be unmanned? Because uh, you know, it just seems like we're accomplishing two really I don't know. It seems like you'd want to prove the technology one run first and then yeah. send the next one out with people in it. Yeah. So we'll see. Now, they are fairly thinking happy thoughts for January 2018. But th- if they can't make that, it's not like they can just turn around and try again in a month or two or six. There's actually these specific times, you know, however many years that the planets align just right so that it can make a quick trip. So it'll be, oh gosh, I'm probably wrong, but 15 years off the top of my head. But it'll be a number of years okay. before they can actually try this type of thing again. So right, I'm still skeptical pants. Yeah. Very much so skeptical pants. Yeah. You know, the fact that they want two people on this mission. Wow. The fact that they expect both of those people to come back alive. Interesting. <laughs> I I don't know. You could like somebody a lot after 500 days of absolutely nothing. Right next to each other. There, there might be a lot of silence. You'd, you'd have to, you'd have to have like, I don't know, video. You'd have to have video games or something. You you'd really have to would. have something. You'd have to have something. But yeah, wow. Well, if you hear anything else about that, I mean, you know, seriously, let us know because it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. If nothing else, yeah, we'll see where it goes. All right, Heather. Well, then, uh, why don't we head over to Mars while we're Let's go. up in the stars? And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Um. So, speaking yeah. of something that really is on Mars, and uh, you don't have to be skeptical about curiosity. Yes, there was a tiny little glitch. A glitch. Yeah, last week I was saying, you know, hey, they've got the, they've drilled in, they have the little dust. It's going to be fairly calm the next couple weeks as they try to, you know, get that through the test and see what happens. And then 
they were doing status check. And on Thursday, the 28th, they were looking at it, switched the rover to an onboard sort of redundant system because there was a memory issue. Mm. So, yeah, it's related to a glitch in the flash memory where it was able to sort of, where it was addressing memory files. So it sent it into an endless loop. So the flash memory got damaged somehow, huh? Yes. Now, they are thinking actually Cosmic Ray. Like, actually for real. <laughs> like, no joke. Like- yeah, like, no joke. This is kind of things that have happened on other spacecraft. This is not just a, yeah. oh my gosh, what happened in this specific case. So they're thinking that it might have damaged that specific place. It's really something, because, I mean, one of the things you've covered on the show is just the extent of the testing that they have done with this thing since it landed. Oh. So uh, I guess maybe, do they know, did this develop more recently? Yes, this is exact. This is extremely recently. Essentially, what happened is they were expecting some. You, know, you wake up, you kind of get all the data back from it, and there was no data. It was just a status check saying, "Hi, I'm here." Ooh. Hi, I'm here. And they're like, "Oh wait, that's not good." Oh no. So they went out, and that's when they saw that the A side memory was, you know, bugging out. So they switched it over. They have redundant systems upon redundant systems. So they switched it over to the other computer. The other set was actually the computer that was handling it all the way to Mars. So that's where it was measuring all the, doing all the measurements and doing all the calculations on its way to Mars. So it's kind of on that computer for right now while they, you know, bug check and try to figure out what they can do with the A side. So try to figure out what they can do with the anomaly, see what they can, they can keep what they can restore. working on the other side. They'll just keep- yeah, they'll keep. They can yeah, probably mark that sec- those, uh, I don't know if sectors is the right word, but if it's like a flash memory, they can probably mark that area of the flash memory bad and maybe, yeah. you know. Hmm. Yeah, so it's just trying to me- restore it to see what they can do and how, how to go about it. Now, even if they get it fully operational again in the next week, um, the amount of science will be sort of limited. The sun is actually going to come between Mars and the Earth in early April. And it's going to sort of block radio communication for about a month. So during that team, they had kind of planned to send back science data, but they ha- they weren't going to send forward any commands because they don't they were you know too much risking too much to, for that something in the command would break up going you know across the you know past the sun onto Mars. So they were just kind of planning for to say, hey, just keep sending your data back. We'll we'll pick it up as we can. So for right now, there might be. A quiet month to see what happens as the sun comes between us and poor little curiosity. Cobalt's a right on topic in the chat room. He says, studies by IBM in the 1990s suggest that computers typically experience about one cosmic ray induced error per 256 megabytes of RAM per month. I don't know if that's true. That's got to be a joke, but that's yeah. very on point. <laughs> yes. Now, I found this almost hilarious because in the office, if somebody has come to me, they're like, what happened? And I have absolutely no idea. There's absolutely no reason for it oh, to yeah. do this. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Cosmic Ray. That's been my Cosmic standard particle practice. Cosmic came yep. in and just kicked your computer the wrong way. I don't know what to tell you. Computer running slow today? Cosmic Rays. I've used it for everything, Heather. I've used Cosmic it for everything. Cosmic Rays are- I, Yeah, it's been my go-to for 15 years. Okay. Yeah, so I, excellent. It's... And you know what? Now it's NASA's go-to. Now it's all. <laughs> no, I'm it's kidding. real. <laughs> I know. They're lucky. They shake it there. They're real. the ones that get it for real. You know, yes. go figure. Well, they I mean, get the real well, excuse. That's what I get for not working in space. That's, that's okay. all I can say. All right, Heather, we'll uh, step on into the time machine. Uh, let's jump go. back here. Here we go. All right. Okay. Whoa. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, a little shake. A little shake here. I, uh, a little bit of a trip. I don't want to freak you out, but I forgot to fill it up from last time. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, what did you do? Oh. That was a long trip last week. We made it, though. And uh, yeah. not too bad of a journey, either. 216 okay. years ago, March 10th, 1797. Something big happened this week in science. Yes. Thomas Jefferson actually presented a paper, paper on the megalonics. Anyway, it was the first published... Um, U.S. talking about paleontology. Hmm. So it was the, was technically the first in paleontology. Now, it wasn't the only paleontological paper written by Jefferson. Okay. And he wasn't necessarily, you know, peak in that specific field. He wasn't the go-to guy. But somebody had sent him some bones that were from an ancient sloth, you know, very big sloth. You know, well, ancient sloths were very large. This, is, this specific one was sort of medium on that large scale. Now, he looked at it and he saw a couple of bones and he had theories that, you know, no species would ever naturally go extinct or or come oh. out of nowhere. Okay. So he was using it saying, hey, I bet these are from a large lion and oh. actually went and talked to Lois and Clark and said, Hey guys, look out for this kind of a creature. I think it would look like this. So he was very involved with it for that case. But it was very interesting that Thomas Jefferson actually wrote the first American publication of paleontology. That that was sort of intrigued me. It startled me. Talk about talk about a man of many hats. Yes. <laughs> wow. Kind of makes me feel like an underperformer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you look at some of these people in the history, you know, they're doing this and all sorts of calculations and they, you know, watch Venus for three days and they calculate where it's going to be in six months. Right, right. I'm like, wow. You know, I, I think- thought I thought it was hard to, you know, get the toaster to toast my toast right this morning. Uh, it must have been their upbringing. Good old yeah. classic upbringings. Uh, all right. Well, wow, that's a good one. So then that was 216 years ago, too. So how about yes. that? All right, well then, uh, let me retune so that way we can look up into the sky this week. That's right. Now, currently, Mercury, Venus, and Mars are hiding behind the sun's glare. You know, we talked about curiosity as sort of going into the no communication zone behind the sun. Uh, Jupiter, however, is going to be high in the south to southwest just after sunset. It'll be moving over to the west to southwest later in the evening. Saturn is about 10, 11 p.m. local. We're rising into the east to southeast, moving high across the southern skies by dawn. Now, of interest that we're going to be looking at this month is the comet Pan-STARRS. It's about, so 10 degrees is about the width of your fist at, held at arm's length. Okay. Now, there is a diagram in the show notes saying, you know, four, if you're four degrees north latitude, that's like Denver, New York, Madrid, look 30 minutes after sunset, it should be you know, roughly a fist off the horizon. Hmm. So north of there, you'll be a little lower early in March than shown. But look to the west around sunset, uh, about 30 minutes after sunset, and you might be able to see a little smudge. Oh. It depends on... And these are comets? It is a comet. A comet. Oh, okay. Yep. Oh, the comet pants I It's just you. moving across the sky. Uh-huh. I see. So it'll be, the moon will be over in that area. So just kind of look... In case you can't figure out where West is, if you get all confuddled, so just look towards the sunny 
setting sun and there should be mo- the moon over there. And within a fist width of the horizon, look and see if you see a little dot and kind of smudge off to the side. And that's the comet. Now, that is the comet. Now, it may completely depend on, you know, how much, how well it's doing. It may fizzle quickly. It may make a good show. And it may highly depend on where you are to say, you know, I'm in Denver. There's a lot of light pollution. Might not be able to see it as well than somebody in, you know, middle of West Texas where there's absolutely no lights. You yeah, know, yeah. Very little light. Yeah. That's, so. that's going to be the spot to be. Yep. Now, there will be another comet later this year that is sort of across your fingers about how it will, it's, uh, its possibilities will look like. Hmm. Well, I'm sure but, you'll keep us updated. Oh, yes. Speaking of keeping us updated, we should give a little public service announcement before we wrap up. Yes. Sunday is daylight savings time. Yeah. I got to remember this because I have a show on Sunday. Yes. <laughs> oh. Sunday, you must spring ahead. You will lose an hour of sleep, but oh, you're just man. putting it on hold until later this year. That's going to be a rough one. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> it's spring ahead, Sunday morning, so your phone may accidentally or you know may do it for you, but if you have any other clocks in the house, make sure mm. you do that. Mm-hmm. I know I can generally tell the Monday after Daylight savings time because some people come in an hour later going, what happened? Oh, you have an you know, analog. You have an analog clock at home, don't you? <laughs> yes. Or, yeah. you know, somebody's alarm clock will be set to wake them up and they're an hour off. They're like, where was everybody? I always assumed those people were just using it as an excuse. <laughs> I've had a worker, a coworker that actually had that problem. I, I He's like, what the heck's do. going on? I'm like, you used your alarm clock. Check your phone. Maybe it's just what me. Happened? It might just be me that uses it as an excuse when I can. Okay. Mm. I, I'll use it as an excuse if I have to. Yeah. All right, I'll be like Heather. staying up playing a game. And I'll be like. Yeah. You'll be playing um, Sims. You'll be. And then. Oh. Uh, I. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Daylight savings. Daylight savings time. So that's this. Mess me up. That's this Sunday, March 10th. Yes, it is. And we spring ahead. So remember that, everyone. And uh, let's all get together sometime and petition whoever we have to petition to just get rid of this daylight saving stuff. Okay. I find the whole thing confusing. Yes. All right, well, that was a great show. And, uh, of course, we really would like it if you could join us live. Like a bunch of fine people in our chat room. We have 206 uh, fantastic folks in there right now. Hi, everyone. And uh, thank you for joining us. And you are you are invited to join us on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. And then, of course, you can always download us later, Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, Heather, well, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. See you right back here next week.